Well, good morning. Uh, the children at this time are, are dismissed uh, to Children's Church. Uh, while they're on their way out, we'd encourage you to take your Bibles uh, and open, him up, open them up to Exodus uh, chapter 40 this morning. Uh, and then while you're there, be ready also to flip to John uh, chapter 1. We're kind of going to do something similar to what we did last week, and that's look at the Old Testament and a promise and see how Jesus uh, fulfills it. Uh, what we're going to do a little bit differently is I'm going to kind of start a little more with the New Testament and show how this fulfills a theme uh, or an idea in the Old Testament. So uh, not quite the same way that we went through it last week, uh, but it is part of our series on the promises of Christmas. And last week uh, was the promise of the seed uh, in Genesis of the coming Savior. Uh, this week is in Exodus, the promise of uh, the tabernacle. So we want to read this morning Exodus chapter 40, uh, verses 34 to 38. This is at the end of the book of Exodus, right before Leviticus starts, and it's as after they've built uh, the tabernacle. Listen then to the word of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle uh, by day and fire in it by night. For in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, keep your finger there and flip over to John's Gospel in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 1, and I want to read just John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to come before you today and, and just delight ourselves in you. We want to give praise and, and honor to you and thank you for uh, all of the good things that you have done for us. Most of all, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who became flesh uh, on our behalf and for our sake. We thank you as we enter into the Christmas season that we would celebrate this. And you've given us uh, the opportunity to celebrate and then gather uh, together as the church today and remember who it is uh, that we worship. You, O Lord Jesus, as well as the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one uh, triune God. And so, Lord, we just praise you for this. Give me the words to say uh, from this passage. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, one of the great themes in Scripture is God coming down and dwelling with His people. Imagine what it would be like in your neighborhood if someone famous moved in. I have never lived near or next to someone famous, uh, and not to my knowledge, someone rich, no one that was in the government or Hollywood or anything. But, but imagine if you got word today that that big house on the end of your street, someone famous was moving in, maybe someone important, maybe a former president or a key senator, someone that you could look up to. 
How excited would you be? Wouldn't that be really amazing? What would that do for the property values in, in your neighborhood? Everybody would, would suddenly want to buy a house on your block. It would, it would increase the value of your neighborhood. It would say something important about, about where you live. We live in a world where God's goal and plan was to enter into it and dwell with his people. And down through the, the pages of Scripture, this is one of the continuing themes that God will not stay distant from his people, but he hears them and he comes down and he is going to dwell with them. He's going to be present with them. And last week we looked at, at the Garden of Eden a little bit and then the promise of the seed. And you'll just remember how God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The garden was a place where God could dwell with them. We are told, of course, in Isaiah, that when the Messiah comes, he will be called Emmanuel. Why? What does that mean? It means God with us. The fulfillment of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is born of the Virgin Mary in the manger. He is God with us. God in the flesh. And that is our main point this morning, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is truly God, and yet at the same time, He takes on the fullness of humanity without ceasing to be God and all of the attributes that God has and that Jesus the Son has as God. He also takes on the full attributes of humanity. So we might say he is truly God and truly man, or 100% God, and at the same time, 100% man. <clears throat> you have to excuse me this week, I've been fighting off a little bit of a cold. But Jesus is God in the flesh. And we just want to work through this passage primarily just looking at one verse and then making some connections as well to Exodus. So Jesus became Flesh. That's our first point this morning. Jesus became flesh. Jesus becomes truly man. Look at the first part of verse 14. The Word became flesh. This really is the key to Christmas. What is going on in that tiny manger when the baby Jesus is born? When we hear the stories of, of Mary and she is told by the angel, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. What is going on? The Son of God, who is truly God in all of His divine attributes, will now, inside the womb, take up residence and take on the fullness of humanity. Jesus Christ becomes a man and is born an infant. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Look back, if you will, at John chapter 1, verses 1 uh, to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him uh, was not anything made that was made. So, what is this saying at the beginning of the chapter? It is saying that Jesus Christ, the Word, is truly God, but distinct 
from the Father. He is a second person within the one Godhead. So we have this language, in the beginning was the Word. Now notice this, if you will. Notice how this says, in the beginning. What does that mean? Well, it means when everything started, when God created everything. There is a point in time, or a point even, we might say, where time itself begins. When God speaks things into existence. But what does it say here? In the beginning was the Word. If you're, if you're a grammar nerd, if you're a bit of a, a grammar person, you'll notice... Uh, thank you, John. Uh, you'll notice that, that it is in the past tense. Was. The Word already existed when there was this in the beginning point. He is eternal. He was with God, meaning He's with God the Father. He is there dwelling in all eternity past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then it says, and the Word was God. So he is distinct from the Father as to being his, uh, a person. But in terms of sharing in the divine attributes, in terms of, of sharing in the divine nature, he is truly God. He is just as much God as the Father is God. He is just as much God as the Holy Spirit is God. He is God in all of God's glory. These three persons of the Trinity have existed from all eternity past, and they are not three gods, but one. But then the Bible says that the Word became flesh, and it means that the eternal Son of God came down as a man and took up all the attributes that are essential to being human. The Son did not stop being God, but He also took on all the character qualities of humanity, human nature, meaning He had DNA, meaning He had flesh and blood, meaning He had a human heart. He had a human soul even. Why? Because that's what it means to be human. We are composed not only of flesh and blood, but we have an invisible soul as a human. And the Lord Jesus, as a man in true humanity, had all of these things. Note here as well, it is not the person of the Father who becomes flesh. It is the, the Word, the person of the Son, who was with the Father, who was with God and was God, who becomes flesh. And it happens that he actually became a human. So there's this language here of, in the beginning, the word was, meaning he always existed. But then there is this point in time much later that he actually, what? Becomes human. That means from the point of creation until uh, the point where the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary in the womb, the Lord Jesus, though he lived and existed, he did not live and exist as a human. He takes on humanity. There is an element of mystery to this. There is an element of wonder to this. There is an element of just this is amazing. 
that God would so step down into his creation that he would assume full humanity in the person of the Son. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of the woman, born under the law. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children, that's, that's all of us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Lord Jesus Christ partook of human flesh and blood, fully sharing in it so that he could be like one of us in every, in every respect except without sin. Hebrews chapter 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. If the Lord Jesus Christ was going to represent us on the cross, if the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be our king and our high priest and, and serve us by dying and rising again for us and, and for our sake, he had to become like us in every respect. He had to be completely human. Now, he did not stop being God, but he did take on the fullness of humanity. Let me sort of give you a trick question. Is sin essential to being human? The reason I say it's a trick question is we know that every human being is born a sinner. Every human being that descends from Adam is under the guilt of Adam's sin. So in one sense, no one comes into this world with none of us anyways, come into this world without being tainted and corrupted by sin. But sin is not essential to being human. Was Adam and Eve human in the garden before they sinned? Absolutely. What is essential to being human is the flesh, the blood, the heart, the DNA, the, the human soul. Jesus Christ took on all of these things, but did not take on sin. He was never a sinner in any way. And that is so that as the innocent one dying on the cross, God could lay upon him in his flesh and blood all of the punishment that the rest of us as human beings deserve because we are the sinners. And so the incarnation, and when you even think about Christmas, you, you can't think of Christmas in and of itself without at least in some way realizing he comes as truly human because of the cross. You can't think about Christmas with it, without at least having an eye towards why the cross. But even as we talked about last week in, in Genesis chapter 3 and the promises beyond just the cross is he's going to reign. He's going to rule. And that's why we have the resurrection. That, that what started in Jesus being born and becoming flesh continues. Jesus Christ is right now in heaven in a human resurrected body. He is just as much truly human now in heaven as he was when he first came. 
Sometimes I think we people think that the resurrection is almost like Jesus taking off his deity, or excuse me, taking off his humanity. But that's not how it is. It is a resurrection of his human life again. The body comes back to life. It's the same hope that you and I have. Again, this is a mystery how it is that, that the human and the divine natures can come together in one person. But, but Scripture testifies everywhere. This is what God does. This is how far He goes to, to take up residence in our midst. He becomes just like one of us in every respect. Jesus Christ was truly God the Son when He took on human nature. He didn't stop being God. But he did start being human. It boggles the mind how the infinite one that cannot be contained by his creation, that is omnipotent and omnipresent, could at the same time step down into time and step down into a human body and take up residence amongst his people down through church history, and some of you uh, are familiar with church history, and I enjoy elements of church history, you'll note that this doctrine has been defended from attacks. People have, have mocked it and made fun of it. People have debated it. Well, the Son of God couldn't truly be flesh. One of the early heresies of the church was that he only looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. And, and the best way to describe this heresy is think of how you put on a sheet over yourself uh, during Halloween if you're dressing up as a ghost. You're not really a ghost, but you just cover yourself and you pretend to look like one. And, and this early heresy said Jesus wasn't really a human being. He just kind of covered himself like we would cover ourselves with a sheet. And so everybody just thought that he looked like a human, but he really wasn't a human. Now, Jesus was a human. If you pricked him with a needle, he would have bled. I am sure, I, I'm not a prophet, but I am, I am 99% sure that when Jesus was a little boy, he skinned his knee at some point. Jesus was truly human, and Jesus was without sin, but skinning your knee isn't sin. Now, without sin means when mom said, don't run at the synagogue, Jesus wasn't running at the synagogue. But I'm sure he was running around outside and, and I'm sure he, he tripped and fell. He skinned his knee or something. He probably in his human life caught a cold. Why do I say that? Because we know he died. In his humanity, he was vulnerable to all the things that we can be vulnerable to. He never sinned, but he lived in a human body. The early church also in, in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon explains this coming together in this way of, of truly God and truly man. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. In these latter days, for us, 
and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparable, the distinctions of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. That is a big fancy way to say he was truly God and truly man. And he remained 100% God. And he remained a hundred percent man. It didn't, it didn't mix. There wasn't like a, uh, you know how when you make a cookie recipe and you pour some, some, uh, you pour some flour in and then you pour some oil in and you have to mix them and you might say the cookies are, are fifty percent flour and fifty percent oil. And I probably got the measurements all wrong or whatever. But the point is there was no mixing. He was at both the same time a hundred percent divine God to be worshipped and at the same time a hundred percent human, completely human. And so we say he's fully God and fully man, not half God and half man. No, he bears the fullness of of both. The importance of Christmas then is the Son of God coming in the flesh. I want to just make a comment here, sort of as an application and how we should think about it. Think through the song Away in a Manger. Now, I'm not criticizing the song per se. It's a good song and it's wonderful to sing with the children. But notice the second line of Away in the Manger. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from above. And the song uh, continues to go on. Jesus is truly the Son of God in that manger bed. It's a wonderful song to sing. You have this picture of Jesus sleeping. Think about this for a moment. The God who made the world and upholds the world by the work of his mighty power, by the work of his mighty word. He, he sustains creation and he himself in this humanity now needs to sleep. You see in the Gospels that he gets tired, that he needs to retreat and rest. He has human nature. And so on the one hand, he is fully omnipotent. And on the other hand, in his humanity, he does what human beings need to do. Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and didn't eat for 40 days, you had better believe he was hungry. I don't even like going 40, uh, I was going to say 40 hours, but I don't even like going that long without food. You know, six hours and I'm like, oh, I think I need to eat something. And you know how your stomach gets and your, your sugar levels perhaps drop and you become weak and you, you become irritable. You know those TV commercials, you know, have a Snickers because you're not yourself. Um, that is the effect of sin when we get hungry, right? Jesus got hungry, but he never sinned. He never lashed out. He never became irritable or lost his temper. I submit to you. 
that Jesus in the manger would have cried. Away in the manger, or the cattle are lowing, the poor baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, if they just, and I'm, I don't want to parse the theology here too much. Now, if they just mean, you know, it's this sweet, peaceful moment, and, and he's at ease and comforted, and his mom's right there, that's a beautiful picture. That's a wonderful, you know, not every time your kid wakes up when they're an infant do they start crying right away. So that's a beautiful picture of peacefulness. If you use that verse of the song and speculate something like Jesus didn't cry because he was God, you don't understand the fullness of humanity. One, we got to assume that not every time your kid cries when they're an infant are they sinning. That's how babies communicate. They're hungry. They have a poopy diaper. Now, don't get me wrong. They hit the terrible twos and, and, you know, Jesus wouldn't have gone through that sort of rebellious phase because he didn't sin. But the, the basic infant crying because of their needs, communicating with his mother, Jesus would have done it. He would have cried. And, and you know what? Jesus being perfect is a moral category. I'm sure it doesn't mean that Mary never had sleepless nights because she, had, she didn't have to feed baby Jesus in the middle of the night and get him on a sleep schedule or whatever it is that you go through with a baby. But this is the beauty of Christmas, that God became truly flesh. Jesus Christ, I am sure, cried in the manger. And how do I know this? What makes me say this? Because Jesus Christ later in his life cried in his suffering. Think about that for a moment. Jesus never cried in sin, but Jesus cried in desperation because he had the fullness of humanity. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus is not distant from human emotion. He cries out to God. He pleads with God. He never sins and doubts God in these moments. And yet in his despair, he knew despair. And it led him to cry. It led him to plead with God. It led him to pray in utter desperation. Things that you and I as human beings experience. Now sometimes when we experience them, we do sin, you and I. We do say something like, God, where are you? I'm angry at you. But the act of desperation in utter weakness is not itself a sin. There's no shame in asking God for help. There's no shame in being in despair and crying out to God. Jesus Christ was so truly human. When we say he became flesh, we really mean it. He took on all of humanity. He did what every human being is supposed to do when they go through trials and tribulations. When he faced temptations in the wilderness, he quoted scripture. He didn't just say to to, G, to Satan, well, hey, I'm God, leave me alone. In his humanity, he bore that temptation, that hunger, and he quoted scripture. 
He used the same powers and abilities that each one of us has when we're in those situations. Because Jesus Christ was truly man. In the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross and other places in the Gospels, he cries out. Second this morning, back to John 1.14, Jesus was God tabernacled in our midst. So I'm really just going phrase by phrase today. First John 1, or excuse me, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means something like to tabernacle. It means to live, to settle, to take up residence. It's, it's pitching a tent. Jesus Christ is God tenting in our midst. And there is a really strong echo here to the book of Exodus and God pitching a tent in the tabernacle. Now, the tent word is just kind of the normal word we would use for tent. So you see it in Abraham's life. He, he lives in a tent. It's the same noun word, uh, the same noun of the word that is used here in John 1.14. But one of the cool places that it is used, one of the picturesque places that is used, in which why I say the tabernacle is a promise, is it is used to describe the tabernacle. What goes on with the tabernacle? This is where we turn to Exodus. With the tabernacle, God comes and dwells with his people. So Genesis 25, 8 and 9, or excuse me, Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And then make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. Exodus 26, 30. And then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you are shown on the mountain. So Moses is going to go up on the Mount Sinai. He's going to be shown this tabernacle. He's shown this portrait of what heaven looks like because God's dwelling is in heaven. And then he's to make this miniaturized version of what he sees. And it's a tent. It's a tabernacle. And in Exodus 29, it says this. It shall be a regular burnt offering, speaking about the sacrifices in the tabernacle, throughout your generations as to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you and speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent among Excuse me, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What is God's plan in making his creation and making humanity and then making uh, the redeemed of Israel and then even making the redeemed of the church? The great picture in Scripture is what? God will come and dwell with his people. And one of the ways he does that in the Old Testament is in the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle becomes kind of like a pointer to something better that is going to come. He says, in effect, you know, so that I can explain to you who I am in my glory and what is necessary for me to come down and dwell with you so that my glory doesn't destroy you, I'm going to set up the tabernacle. 
And you have the whole sacrificial system in and through the tabernacle. And you have the, the veils of the tabernacle that, that cover the glory of God so God's people aren't destroyed by His holiness in their midst. The point is that this is God's intent to come and dwell with human beings. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, which we read earlier, and I want to read to you again, Exodus chapter 40 Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up and over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken away, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was in it by night and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This theme is repeated later on when Solomon builds the temple. The glory of God comes down. God makes himself present in the midst of their people. And as they're, they're going around with the tabernacle, the tabernacle is literally set up at the center so that you have three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three to the east and three to the west, and then the Levites surrounding uh, the tabernacle. It makes God the, the center of their world, so to speak, the center of their community. That God is here, and he describes himself as, in Leviticus as one who is walking Amongst his people, the principle of the tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus. First, Jesus is God dwelling in our midst with a noticeable difference. In Jesus, God takes up residence in our midst as one of us. Athanasius In his book, The Incarnation of the Word, a wonderful book. I'd encourage you to read it if you ever have a chance. He uses this imagery to describe Jesus coming to live amongst us. And as like when a great king has entered into some large city and taken taken up his own abode in one of the houses there, such a city is at all events held worthy of high honor. Nor does an enemy or bandit any longer descend upon it and subject it. But on the contrary, it is thought entitled to all care because the king's having taken up his residence in a single house there, so too has it been with the monarch of all. God the Son takes up residence in full humanity. In the tabernacle, the glory is there and it's covered with a veil. Jesus' flesh doesn't cover his glory. He takes on that full humanity so that he might manifest his glory and presence. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the tabernacle in at least two ways. It shows us what is necessary to approach God. And so you have Jesus dying on the cross, the sacrifice. And you have Jesus ascending into heaven, becoming the true high priest, going into God's presence so that the way can be opened for all of us. The reason we don't have an earthly temple or tabernacle anymore is because Jesus does this in fulfillment. 
He's God in the flesh, but then as a human being, he goes up into God's presence and says, now the rest of you can come into God's presence because I went there as one of you, as a representative. There would be no cross, no resurrection, and no present reign of Jesus in the way that he reigns now as one of us if it wasn't for Christmas. Christmas, in a sense, starts off the whole sequence of events that culminates in the reign of Jesus as one of us. The tabernacle, Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle in that it shows us that God's goal is to dwell with his people and make his glory known. The end of the book of Revelation says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself with them as their God. Jesus Christ is at the center of this. Our God in the flesh, dwelling in our midst, sitting at the right hand of the Father on the throne. And as He brings all of these things to a culmination, a completion in the new heavens and the new earth, guess what? The whole city comes down and descends. The whole presence of God is there, not only in Jesus, but in the new Jerusalem descending. So that God is our God and we are His people. This theme literally goes from Genesis to Revelations. And it's over and over again in various ways. And and Christmas, if you will, is the very center of this. God dwelling with us. If I could make just one application to current events. I wouldn't have normally said this. Uh, but it just happened this week, so I'm going to just say something about it. Uh, everybody's talking about how uh, President Trump moved the United States Embassy uh, from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. And, and whether you think it's great or not, I don't, I don't really want to debate the politics of it. But I want to speak to this issue. Don't invest that with spiritual significance. Don't invest that with spiritual significance. There are a certain type of preacher and and popular expositor of the word of God. And it's more than just one person. And and they say, wow, look at what is happening. This is fulfillment of some sort of end time promise and prophecy. Now, look, I do think there will be at the end of the age, many Jewish believers converting to Jesus as their Messiah. But the hope of Scripture is not God rebuilding the earthly Jerusalem. The hope of Scripture is the Son of God coming down, returning for His people. And there's a whole sequence of events, and I'm, I'm not, here's not the time or the place to go into it, but the very culmination of this is not building a new earthly Jerusalem that goes up, but a heavenly Jerusalem where Jesus is now, where our life is hidden now, coming down. We are a part of what Paul and Revelations describe as a new heavenly Jerusalem. And it will come down with the coming of the Messiah. 
There's a whole series of events and Jesus Christ will establish uh, an earthly rule for a period of time. But the ultimate hope is the new heavens and the new earth. God dwelling with man. And our real hope is not ever going to be in an earthly temple or an earthly tabernacle ever again. The real hope is in Jesus. And Jesus went up into heaven, the heavenly tabernacle that Moses saw the picture of. And Jesus is God dwelling with us. It's the story of Christmas. And the story of Christmas comes to a climax, not as Jesus grows up as a baby. The story of Christmas comes to a completion and climax at the end of Revelation. That God will be our God and we will be His people. And He will walk in our midst as we walk with Jesus in our own resurrection bodies, right next to His resurrection body. That is the hope of Christmas. Lastly, this morning, in Jesus we have seen God's glory. So there's this imagery of glory in the tabernacle, this glory that descends. And and part of the reason for the veils is not only to keep people from going into the tabernacle, but it's to remind people that they can't be exposed to the full presence of God's glory. They can't have the fullness of God's glory radiating out of the tabernacle or it would destroy them. This is not to say that God is literally contained by a tent. You can't put God in a physical box. But it is a sign and a symbol and a picture to us that until we are cleansed from sin, we can't see the full presence of God's glory. And so, when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the veil in the earthly temple is torn. And I think it's torn for two reasons. One, it shows that we can go into the presence of God. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. We have a new and living way into the presence. But I think it's also to show that God's glory is going to once again spread to all creation. It's going to come out. And it's going to come out as the gospel spreads And it's going to come out fully and finally as the new heavens and the new earth are created and the heavenly Jerusalem descends. But John 1.14 says this, We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Just as in the tabernacle the children of Israel saw this cloud And it symbolized the glory of God. And you'll remember even how Moses in the presence of God comes down off the mountain. And and remember how his face is like radiating and they are scared. He has been with God and he is just reflecting God's glory in his human face. And so Moses actually has to put a veil over his head. Uh, Like, you know, if it lived in modern times, you know, like put a paper bag over your head so you don't get scared. But they're not scared because Moses is ugly. They're scared because the glory of God is so beautiful. And they are sinners and they can't be even in the reflection of Moses' glory. Or excuse me, of God's glory on Moses' face. And yet you see, when you see Jesus, and when the disciples saw Jesus, they were seeing 
the glory of God. They didn't see the full onslaught of the radiance all the time. You think of the Mount of Transfiguration and how he actually radiates that glory out in those moments for him to see. And he says, you know, don't tell anybody about this yet. But what John is saying is that when you saw Jesus, you were also seeing God and not just a man. When you touched him, you were touching a man, but you were also touching God. So in 1 John, John writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest. It's similar language. The Son was with the Father and now He was present. And how present was He? We saw Him. We touched Him. He wasn't a ghost floating around. He wasn't pretending to be human, but you couldn't lay hold of Him. He was really human. He had a real body. And when that spear pierced His side, it pierced a real Jesus. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. A little play on the words there. No one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen God the Father. But the only God, meaning the Son, who is at the Father's side, you again see both the Father and the Son, truly God, but distinct persons, the Son, the only God at the Father's side, The Son has made him known. John 14, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, you do do know him, and you have seen him. Philip, being the smart disciple that he was, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, we have seen the glory of God. We have seen God the Father. Well, how? We saw the Son. And the Son shares in the glory of the Godhead. Jesus continues, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak out of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does uh, his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works himself. And then Jesus says a few verses later, I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Yet you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right now, the way that God fulfills this promise of dwelling with us is in two ways. Jesus Christ is in heaven and he's still in the flesh for us. But while Jesus is away from us physically, the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit 
dwells in us. He's another helper. And the Spirit brings the glory of God into our hearts so that we can see who Jesus is and believe in the Gospel. So we can understand the message of Christmas and the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection. Notice this. At Christmas, the glory of God really came. That's the point of celebrating Christmas. The Son of God took up residence. I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. Do you understand the beauty of Christmas? The wonder of Christmas? We can get so caught up in all of the good things that we do over Christmas. The giving of gifts, the eating of food, the spending time with family. But take a moment and reflect. The glory of God dwelt among men. He took up flesh. He became like us in every respect. He was completely human. There is a sense that when you pray to Jesus, you can never cry out to Him and say, you just don't understand what I'm going through. You ever do that as a teenager to your parents? You, you just don't understand. You, you weren't there. It's not like... It's not like when you were a kid. And sometimes that's how we act in our suffering. And sometimes that's how we act in the trials of our humanity. And Jesus Christ truly becoming flesh makes him fit to be a merciful and faithful high priest because he was truly human in that human body. And he continues to be in his resurrected state, truly human. How do I know there's a resurrection coming? How do I know even in the deepest and darkest days that there's hope? Because Christ went through his deepest and darkest days and was resurrected. And as the creed says, he did this for us and for our salvation. And by the way, don't take the word of the creed. Just read the whole Bible and you can see he did it for us and for our salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just come before you today and we want to give you thanks and praise. Uh, we want to ask that you would uh, work in our hearts and just have a joy this Christmas. Maybe some of us have never thought about all of the implications of what it means that Jesus became a, a truly human. I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture uh, and even this idea of him tabernacling and the glory of God being present there in him, that you would remind us of the true, and the, mean, the true meaning and the wonderful message uh, that we have in Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here it stands.